0: Believe it or not, 308 million people of our 309 million are not lawyers. And you have to explain to them, why does this mean something to you? And really, that's what I'm trying to do. And so I've sort of framed this around a couple of questions. And the first question is this. Say, go back to the time when Madison and Hamilton were writing the Constitution. As he says, shouldn't we have somebody who says when different parts of the government have gone outside the boundaries that this Constitution sets, because that's what it does, it sets boundaries. He says, I've written a great document. He doesn't say that publicly, it would be immodest, but he has, it is a fabulous document. And we carry it around, this is it. He looks at this and he says, well, I think this is pretty good, but if we don't have some mechanism Some way to try to keep people in line to the lines that it draws, let's put it in a museum. But nonetheless, who should say? The president? He's not. He shouldn't have that power. Because if he has that power, exclusively, finally, he'll become too powerful, he already has enough power, we don't like him also to say everything he does is constitutional, which he might. Well, Congress. They're the elected ones. It's as a democracy, isn't it? He said, well, there's a problem with that. He says that this Constitution is designed to give exactly the same rights to the least popular person in the United States as to the most popular. And the difficulty with Congress is they are experts in popularity. I mean, if they weren't, they wouldn't be there. So they know popular. And isn't it a little too much to expect that they will say after passing a law that's popular that it's unconstitutional when that's unpopular? So here's what we'll do. We'll take these judges. They're sort of gray bureaucrats. Nobody knows really who they are. And most important, they don't have the power of the purse and they don't have the power of the sword. So they can't really overstep their bounds too easily. We'll give them the job. It does have something to do with law. They are lawyers. We'll put the power there. And the question is, put it in Hamilton's terms, or as if I were addressing him, if these nine people, or however many, if uh, they're so gray and nobody's heard of them and they don't have the power of the purse and they don't have the power of the sword and they're gonna decide in favor of those who are very unpopular some of the time, Why would anyone do what they say? And if you look back at the history of the country, and particularly the court, you will see that people were very worried about that question. People, I mean the judges were at least. And the Supreme Court is very worried. Will that happen? And that's why Marbury versus Madison is a kind of Houdini-like tour de force. That's where Marshall said that uh, there is the power in the court to overrule Congress. And he said it in a case where one of the litigants was really. Thomas Jefferson, he thought that Marshall would say, what you're doing, Jefferson, is illegal. And he said, good, say it, say it, say it, and tell me I can't do it, because I'll do it. And what Marshall did was brilliant. He said, it's illegal what you're doing, Mr. Jefferson, absolutely illegal, but since it's not constitutional for us to hear the case, since Congress told us we could hear it, but they can't do something unconstitutional, you win. Now, if you don't follow all that, don't worry about it. But the point is, Jefferson won, and and Marshall establishes the power, and Jefferson was furious. He wrote letters after that said, don't pay any attention to that case. It was just dicta, for those of you who are lawyers. (laughs) All right? Now, they're worried, and they are right to worry. The story I like to tell as time advances, which I think is a story of a very important decision for the court, very important. The decision is called Cooper versus Aaron. And it took place three years after Brown versus Board of Education. Now, as you know, Brown versus Board of Education, the court looked at the Constitution, which said no state shall deprive any person of equal protection of the law, and they said if you look to see what's happening, basically, that's what's happening. They're depriving uh, uh, black people of equal, I mean, you understand the situation, we all know that. All you had to do was open your eyes and look, and they said, Legalized segregation is illegal. Segregation, laws that uh, segregate the South, the schools, illegal. We all know that decision. Maybe the most important, one of the most important, certainly. One of the two or three in the history of the court. And what happened in 1955? Now, you got it right. Nothing. Next to nothing. Let me not exaggerate. And what happened in 1956? You're right again, next to nothing. And then in 1957, a judge in Little Rock, Arkansas, said it's time to begin. In September of 1957, you must admit black students into the white school. And they were the Little Rock Nine, whom we've all heard of, and they're they're very brave, and they they were uh, uh, beginning an ordeal. And they were supposed to go into that school in September of 57. And during the summer of 57, Orville Pabas uh, uh, decided he was going to be more segregationist than he previously had been. And he sent uh, troops to go out in that, to that school. And that state militia uh, was told, keep the black children out of the school. Right? But there were mobs around the school. A lot of us can remember that, the pictures in September of 1957. And the famous picture, the famous picture of that week, when integration was to begin, was the picture of Elizabeth Eckford, looking very dignified, about to walk into the school, and behind her is a white woman whose face is contorted with rage. But at that moment, that was the symbol of what was happening, and it wasn't good. Well, for two or three days, there was chaos. I mean, the white citizens' councils were around the schools, Uh, They were figuring out how to get the black children in there. They got in one day, and then they had to come back. And uh, Brooks Hayes, who was the congressman from Little Rock, called President Eisenhower and arranged a meeting between him and Governor Faubus. Governor Faubus went to Newport, where where he was uh, holding sort of the summer White House, and met with the president. Faubus came out of the room, and after he said, after he said, uh, the the president dressed me down uh, like a general dresses down a private. And he told the president uh, that he would support the integration and would see it would happen, and then he went out and told the press the opposite. Well, Eisenhower was pretty annoyed. They had to figure out what to do, and they were considering troops, and it wasn't such an easy decision. Jimmy Burns, whom some of you remember that name, he'd been on the Supreme Court of the United States. He resigned during World War II in order to run the civilian half of the war mobilization effort. He later was governor of South Carolina. And he was not a, he wasn't really a racist. He was a major advisor to President Truman. And he went to see Eisenhower and he said uh, to the president, uh, if you send troops to Little Rock, you will have to reoccupy the South. He said, you will have to have a second reconstruction. Are you prepared for that? And he said, the very best thing that can happen, if you're lucky, is that they'll close the schools and no one will be educated. Herbert Brownell, who was the attorney general, spoke to Eisenhower and said, you have to do it. You have to do it. It's a question of the rule of law, and Eisenhower he did it he decided i'm doing this i'm taking a thousand troops and he took a thousand from the 101st airborne and all americans knew who they were and eisenhower deliberately selected them and he put a thousand of them on airplanes and flew them into little rock and they they got off the planes they took those children and the nine children walked into the schools escorted by the federal troops And that picture was taken. And that picture went around the world as well. And I think, I mean, that was a great day for the rule of law. It was a great day uh, for the uh, uh, cause of equality. It was a great day for, for the United States of America. And I'd like to be able to end the story there. But I can't. I mean, then what happened was they stayed for a while, but eventually they had to leave. And when they left, there wasn't exactly chaos, but it wasn't so nice either. And uh, the board went back. It had been fired by the people who elected a segregationist board. And they went back to court. And they tried to uh, uh, get the order lifted and said, "We have too much chaos. We can't have it. We'll start, segregation. We'll start integration uh, next year or the year after, maybe. <clears throat> and that case went all the way up to the Supreme Court pretty quickly. And that's the case of Cooper versus Aaron. The court announced its decision. It wrote an opinion. It said, integrate now. And all nine judges, all nine signed that. That's very unusual. The day after the court announced its decision, Governor Faubus closed the school. And for that stayed closed for about a year. And uh, nobody got any education. And read what happened to them. I mean, black and white had a difficult time. Uh, And it wasn't going to be at that school. Brave, those nine. But you see, I think the die was cast. They couldn't keep the schools closed. Another board was elected. They reopened the school. And that was just the beginning of something, that 1957. Because there was then Martin Luther King, and there were all the civil rights movements, and so forth. And We understand all that. And we know that eventually it worked out all right. So you say, what about this case? To me, I'm a judge. And that sending of the troops, that thousand troops that went on that airplane to support that decision, even though it took a long time and a lot of other people helping, that's a turning point for me. Something's happening. And that is a key marker. Now, Bush versus Gore, I was in the dissent. Right? Uh, I didn't think it was a good decision. I thought it was wrong. But I heard Harry Reid. He said, one of the most remarkable things about that case And that is despite the fact that it was an unpopular decision. I think it might by 500,000 votes anyway, but it was probably unpopular on balance. And even though you might think it's wrong, and I did think it was wrong, people did follow it. They might not have liked it, but they followed it. There were not guns in the streets. There were not riots. There were no injuries, deaths. He said, and that is a remarkable thing. And that is a treasure in the United States. And that's what I think. Now, I know in a lot of audiences, I'm talking to, I tell this story because I like the story. I think it really illustrates something. And uh, I say, well, you're about 20% of you are thinking when I say there were no riots and so forth, you're thinking, and too bad there weren't. Okay, yeah. That's the 20%, I know. But uh, I say, before you reach that as a final judgment, you turn on the television set and see what happens in countries that don't have that principle. You see if you really want that. You see, you see, I want to show them. I want them to think about that. And when they see that television set and they see what happens, they'll come over. Because it is a treasure. I'm trying to say through stories, and there's no other way to do it, what it is to look out across the courtroom and you see People of every race, every religion, every point of view. And there, there's no, my mother used to say that, there's no view so crazy there isn't somebody in this country who doesn't hold it. But uh, uh, yeah, OK. And these 308 million people, growing from 4 million, have decided to settle their differences not in the streets, but under the rule of law. That means they're in the courtroom.